from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we go back into our archives to speak with Carl McCullman, a historian of Christian mysticism who has authored such books as Answering the Contemplative Call, The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, and the forthcoming book, Befriending Silence. Stay tuned. Hello, listeners. Before we begin today, I just wanted to say a quick word about what we're about to hear. This is a rebroadcast of a 2013 interview we did with Carl McCullman. Since we spoke with Carl McCullman, he has been at work on a new book, Befriending Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality, which is now available for pre-order through Amazon.com. And with that, we hope that you enjoy the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Carl McCullman. Carl McCullman is an author, spiritual director, and lay contemplative. He's the author of a dozen books, including Answering the Contemplative Call, First Steps on the Mystical Path, and The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, The Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality. He's a regular contributor to Pathios and the Huffington Post, and you can find out more about him at his website, carlmccullman.com. Carl McCullman, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. So I'm looking at all the titles of your books, and again and again and again, I see spirituality and I see mysticism. And so it seems mm-hmm. like a reasonable question to start and say, Carl McCullman, are you a mystic? <laughs> well, um, that's a great question, and I don't know how to answer it quickly. Let me start with a quote from the, the Jesuit theologian Carl Rahner who said he died about 30 years ago, and he wrote an essay on the future of the Church not long before he died. And he said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all. Now, that's kind of a challenging statement. And when I think about what Karl Rahner said and what I think he meant by it, and I guess my answer to your question would be, well, I hope I'm a mystic, because I hope to be a faithful follower of Christ. And so that would be the first thing that I would say about Christian mysticism. And, of course, we can get into the whole question of Christian mysticism and other varieties of mysticism. But I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So to the extent that I aspire to be a mystic, what that really means is I aspire to intimacy with God in Christ. So um, the reason why I kind of laugh about the question, though, is because I think one of the characteristics of the contemplative life or, if you will, the mystical life, is growth in humility. And so I also aspire to become a more humble person. 
And so the last thing I want to do is kind of, you know, put on airs, as it were, spiritually. Oh, yes, I am a mystic. You know, you may kiss my ring now. You know, I think that would be kind of, you know, bad spiritual form, if you will. So, so I'm not comfortable, you know, labeling myself like I am a mystic or I am, you know, spiritually enlightened or anything like that. I, I think it's, it's, it's best to simply say I hunger for intimacy with Christ and leave it at that. So is it safe to say that you see mysticism as less a goal to be attained and more sort of a journey in which you are participating? Is that a fair characterization? I think that's that's beautifully said, David. I think that um, Krishnamurti said that truth is a pathless land. And I think, you know, to, to put that in, again, kind of a Christian context, that, you know, for us, truth is a person. Truth is God. Truth is Jesus Christ. God is love. Jesus Christ is truth. And so, so to say, you know, that I aspire to the contemplative life or even the mystical life is not to say that I have a particular spiritual goal. If anything, it is to say that I'm not trying to find God so much as I'm trying to be found by God. And, um, and then, you know, the beautiful thing to say there is, well, of course, we are all found by God. Our, our very existence is by the love and grace of God. So the, I guess if there is a goal to the contemplative life, the goal is to, is to relax into it and to, you know, to accept what has already been given to us, that, um, that intimacy with God, union with God, the grace of God is not something we earn, it's not something we achieve, it's really something we receive, it's something we assent to, uh, because it's already there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're listening back to a 2013 interview with Carl McCollman, author of the forthcoming book, Befriending Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality. Well, I'm a child of the 1990s, and a lot of my contemporaries, the folks that I grew up with, I think they were very uh, disillusioned with what we might call institutional Christianity. I come from the, the era that, that began to really popularize the phrase spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I hear things like uh, what you're saying about mysticism, and I, I love the language of being found by, by God, and, but, but you, you, you couched that in particularly Christocentric language. You, you said, truth is a person, truth is Jesus Christ. I think that a lot of people from my generation might be uncomfortable, and I'm not necessarily saying that it's bad that they're uncomfortable with that kind of particular characterization. And and a lot of those those contemporaries of mine ended up looking at non-Western traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism and and other sorts of spiritualities. Why? What is what is the value, I guess, of of having particular Christian language when talking about mysticism? Why not just talk generally about spirituality without having any kind of creedal or particular statements at all? Wonderful question, and and I should also. Um just to share a little bit about who I am, I'm also very engaged with interfaith, I hate to say work, let's say interfaith relationship building. Here in Atlanta, we have, uh, every Sunday evening, we have interfaith contemplative gatherings, and I'm the facilitator of one of those. Um, you know, very much engaged in conversations with, with Buddhists, with neo-pagans, with people of other, other faith traditions. So, um, so when I, I make that kind of Christian assertion, you know, that for me, truth is a person, I'm not, uh, please don't hear that in any kind of a triumphalistic sense. I think the reality is, is that 
every faith tradition has its own claims to truth. And all I can bring to the table, of course, is my own background, my own, my own experience, my own, you know, knowledge base, narrow though it may be. And certainly, you know, my journey has been shaped and, and immersed in and emerges from the rich well of the Christian tradition. But I'm very clear that God is a God of love and a God of grace. And so, you know, I, I really, you know, I'm willing to say a positive statement, like for me, truth is, is a person, truth is Jesus Christ. But that does not follow to say that therefore everyone else is going to hell. In fact, I would say that a statement like that really takes us away from the truth of Jesus Christ, because Christ's message is one of love and grace and forgiveness. And, and really kind of, you know, radically rethinking the way we exercise power in our relationships and culture, and that's both on an interpersonal level and also on a social level. So, um, you know, I'm, I realize I'm kind of dancing around your question. You know, I guess what I would say is that I think that, you know, we all have to be true to who we are. And that's one of the gifts that I found in doing interfaith work, is that, you know, when I'm in, in relationship with, with a Muslim, I don't want that Muslim to apologize for his or her devotion to Islam. Um, I think it's beautiful that they find meaning and grace and light in their faith of origin. And the same thing with somebody who has taken refuge in the Dharma. And so it's very interesting, you know, if, if I'm willing to kind of let Buddhists be Buddhists and let Muslims be Muslims and Vedantists be Vedantists, then I kind of have to turn that back on myself and say, okay, I'm not going to apologize for being a Christian and for using Christian language. I find meaning in that, and I find value in that, and it makes me, I think, by the grace of God, a better person. So, um, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's a paradox here. It's like, I believe that if you are a Christian, be a Christian without apologizing for it. But by the same time, that does not give us the right to be hateful towards people whose paths are different than ours. So I, I hope that begins to shed a little bit of light on where I'm coming from. Let's stay with this thread, though, for just a moment. So if, if someone, a, a person of a younger generation, either my generation or, or younger, was on a, on a path where they were, they were hungering for something spiritual and they began to look at non-Western traditions, what I hear in your answer is you wouldn't necessarily dissuade them. You wouldn't necessarily say, hey, uh, young person, there's so much in our own Christian tradition, why don't you just stay here? If instead they were swimming then with, with Sufism or if they were swimming with Vedanta or if they were swimming with Taoism, it sounds like you would, you would encourage them at least for, for a season. Am I hearing that correctly? Well, um, you know, I mean, I guess I, I would encourage everybody to, to be honest with who they are, to, to understand their motives, to try to bring integrity to their, to their search or to their quest. It, it's very hard for me to stand in judgment of other people's paths because, you know, when I look at my path, it, it was kind of twisty and turny over the years as well. And, and you know, and I, I think that um, I'm going to say what I think is a pretty radical statement. Maybe other people might not think it's so radical, but, but I don't think it is possible for us to cast ourselves outside of the love of God. I think if you are the nastiest, meanest, you know, serial killer who just is sociopathic and hates people, blah, 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 blah. God still radically and unconditionally loves you. And so, so when I think about, you know, who we are and, and the decisions we make and the choices we make and, and, and what it means to sculpt out kind of a spiritual life, especially in this kind of postmodern global village that we find ourselves in, 
that's my starting point is the unconditional love of God and, and the inability to cast ourselves outside of the love of God. Now, you know, kind of back to your question, you know, okay, let's say, you know, yes, uh, somebody who's 25 years old comes up to me and says, you know, I was raised Christian, I did the Christian thing, you know, uh, church was just mind-numbingly boring, all I heard was messages of judgment, God hates gay people and God hates abortion and, you know, yada, 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 yada. I'm just sick of it, and now I'm going to the Shambhala Center, and they're teaching me how to meditate, and I'm, I'm finding some serenity and some peace, and it really, you know, is beautiful, and I'm thinking about taking refuge in the Dharma. What would you say to that? So, so this is the question posed to me, and the first thing I would say is, I would say, I'm very sorry you were wounded by the Church. Speaking as a Christian, as a member of the Body of Christ, I am so, so deeply sorry that you were wounded. And I hope that you can receive that, and I hope that you can hear that. And, and I, God knows I'm not perfect, and, and I've made many, many mistakes in my life, and I've hurt a lot of people I've loved. But, but, you know, by the grace of God, I try to be, you know, somewhat worthy of the grace that's been given to me. So in that extent, I try to be loving to people whose faith journey may be a little bit different from mine. So that would be the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, Obviously, the work that I'm doing, especially at this point in my life, is to celebrate the riches of the Christian contemplative tradition. And, and I, I love that tradition, and I'm eager to share it with anybody who's willing to receive it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2013 interview with Carl McCollman, who's the author of several books on mysticism and spirituality, including Spirituality, a Postmodern and Interfaith Approach to Cultivating a Relationship with God, The Lion, the Mouse, and the Dawn Treader, Spiritual Lessons from C.S. Lewis's Narnia, The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, The Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality, and Answering the Contemplative Call, First Steps on the Mystical Path. McCollman has a new book coming out in November 2015, Befriending Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality. You can find out about all these books at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at his website, carlmccollman.com. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author and Christian contemplative Carl McCollman. We're listening back to an interview conducted in 2013. He's written several books on Christian spirituality, including the forthcoming book, Befriending Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality, which is due out in November of 2015. Before the break, 
I asked McCollman how he would speak to someone who had been wounded by the Christian tradition who wanted to join another religion, and he responded that first of all he would begin by apologizing, and then he would speak from his own experience. So that would be, I guess, what I would say is, if you would like to hear from me why I think this tradition is so rich and so beautiful and so compelling, and that it has the potential to transform our lives and and to really just fill each and every one of us with love and compassion and forgiveness and humility, then I'd be willing to share that with you. But I'm I'm not, you know, in any way, you know, interested in just contributing. You know, if somebody's been wounded by the church, I don't want to pour salt on the wound either. You know, and so kind of recognizing that I think that there are, for some people, their sacred journey, you know, just kind of like you said, you know, we're for a season. You know, and, and I don't want to presume to pass judgment on people. You know, I, I have a very dear friend who was raised Catholic, and as a young man, he, he left Catholicism. He, he took refuge in the Dharma. He is now the director of the Shambhala Center here in Atlanta. We're, like I said, we're good friends. You know, he knows that I am committed in my expression as a, as a Christian. He is committed in his having taken refuge in the Dharma. And we both, like, really celebrate each other's path. And, and I think, you know, we, we kind of have to, you know, have to trust the mystery here that, um, you know, that, that, that God's grace shows up in a lot of unexpected places. And while, you know, I am eager to share with anybody who, who is willing to receive it, you know, the splendor of the Christian tradition, I'm also, you know, I'm very comfortable with people who simply walk a different path. And it's interesting because a lot of Christians say, well, isn't it our job to, you know, to witness to people like that? Isn't our job to try to evangelize? And I say, well, you know, I think my job is to love. You know, it seems that the gospel says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if I'm, if I'm going to be a witness to Jesus Christ, then that means I need to love people, and I need to try to love people as unconditionally as possible. And I think humans, we, we can only go so far. No, no human being, you know, alive today is capable of unconditional love. But, but I think we can strive towards that. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, if I'm trying to convert you, if I'm trying to get you to think that my way is better than your way, I think that compromises my ability to love. And so I would much rather just love you as, as best I can. And then, you know, leave it to the Holy Spirit, you know, that if, if the Holy Spirit is calling somebody, then, then that will show up in their heart. And, um, you know, that's, that's just kind of how I, how I approach the whole question of evangelization. Well, you mentioned a moment ago your, your own path and the, the journey that you've been on. Would you feel comfortable sharing a little bit with our listeners what brought you to this life as a lay contemplative? Yes. I, well, let me see if I could do it briefly. Um, I was raised uh, a Lutheran, but for about the first 10 or 11 years of my, my childhood, my family was unchurched. So we were kind of, you know, you said you were a child of the 90s, I was a child of the 60s, you know, and, and, and religion as a small child was kind of the Bible on the, um, on the coffee table in the living room that I wasn't supposed to touch because it was a holy book. You know? so <laughs> that was kind of my introduction to religion. Eventually, a Lutheran mission opened in our neighborhood. My mother was a cradle Lutheran. So off we went, went to the Lutheran church, and, um, and I, I was a Lutheran basically through my adolescence. When I was 16 years old, I had a very meaningful experience of the presence of God at a Lutheran youth weekend, kind of a retreat weekend. And so that became a very, very kind of a formative moment in my life. 
But I was also, like many children of that era, you know, I struggled against what I saw as the church's kind of old-fashioned morality and, you know, and kind of a culture of restrictiveness. Well, I should say I also, um, you know, had many friends who were Pentecostals. I used to go to Pentecostal prayer meetings uh, at one for a season that was very meaningful to me. But again, I, I began to experience it as kind of a culture of judgmentalism, and, and the image of God that was presented was kind of a very harsh and controlling God. So when I went to college, I kind of walked away from it. And, um, but that, that meaningful experience still was kind of haunting me. And I was reading, I was reading Evelyn Underhill, I was reading Morton Kelsey, C.S. Lewis, you know, a number of writers. You can see they were all kind of Anglican writers, so I found my way into the, the Episcopal Church. And I was an Episcopalian, I guess, for about 10 years. But also, when I was in college, a friend of mine suggested that I read a book about um, neo-paganism, or Wicca, if you will, goddess spirituality. And, and when I read that, that kind of captured my imagination. My name is Scottish. I come from, you know, a Scottish family. So I was very much interested in the Celtic mythology and the Druids and those kinds of things. So for a while there, I was kind of like, you know, an Episcopalian, but I was also interested in, in kind of earth spirituality, goddess spirituality, those kinds of things. And eventually that became more important to me than the Episcopal Church. So I, I, I jokingly say I wandered off into the woods. I left the Episcopal Church, left regular participation in the Episcopal Church, became involved in, in several Wiccan groups, became involved in a Druid group, and spent probably about seven years really just exploring that whole world. It's a very colorful world. It's very postmodern. Very, you know, we used to say it was the, the hippies putting on the Renaissance Fair, um, you know, kind of countercultural. But... Um, but I still had that kind of thread of interest in the Christian tradition that was epitomized by, again, that experience that happened to me as a teenager, and then also my interest in, um, in, in Evelyn Underhill, who had introduced me to the Christian mystics and the great contemplatives in, in, in history. So again, like I said, about seven years of exploring the pagan world, and eventually I just began to find that it just wasn't nourishing me spiritually. And where I turned was I turned to the monastery. I live in, in the suburbs of Atlanta, and we had a Trappist monastery about 20 miles from where I live. And I would go there. I, would, I would, wouldn't even talk to any of the monks. I would just go there, and I would just enjoy the silence. Soak up the silence was basically what I was doing. And I began to realize, oh, I should also mention I, I, I made several trips to Ireland, um, exploring, again, Celtic mythology and those kinds of things. But in Ireland, I also started connecting with, with Catholic Christians over there and, and really began to just find myself being kind of tugged in that direction. So I really struggled with this for a while. I mean, I, I took this into therapy, and I talked to my therapist about this. I'm like, you know, I'm really finding myself being drawn to, to Catholic Christianity, and I'm not really sure what to do about that. My therapist was great, and she was a lapsed Catholic herself, so you'd think she would really kind of push back she really just supported me in being true to my heart and really listening to the, you know, the whispers within my soul. And to make a long story short, I, I just explored that, and I eventually entered into RCIA, and I became a Catholic Christian. And it really startled the, all my pagan friends, and so, so <laughs> there you go. And so I've been a, a Catholic Christian now for, um, let's see, that was 04, so about nine years now. And... Um, and not long after I entered the church, I actually had the opportunity to work at the monastery. And I worked at the monastery for almost eight years. 
And during that period, I had the opportunity to actually begin to study with the monks and to formally make promises as what we call a lay Cistercian. So I'm not a monk. I, I'm still, I have a family, I have a wife and a child, but I'm under a spiritual relationship with the monastery, and I, the monks are my spiritual guides and spiritual directors and teachers. And I basically seek to live a contemplative life outside of the monastery as a lay person in the world. So there it is. Now, and I, I even left out the interest in Buddhism. I've, I've had a long-standing interest in Buddhism. And, of course, the Christian tradition, contemplation, is, is the prayer of silence. And it's so similar methodologically to shamatha meditation, which is kind of the foundational meditation practice of, of at least many traditions of Buddhism. So I'm, I'm very much interested in, in Buddhism philosophically. Um, I haven't taken refuge, so I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. I would not wear that label. But I, I've certainly, you know, I've, I've done some studying at the Shambhala Center, and I'm very, you know, very much drawn to the beauty of that particular tradition. So as I said earlier, you know, my identity is very much a Catholic Christian, a contemplative Christian, but also somebody who's very much dedicated to the interfaith conversation and looking for the grace of God wherever it may show up. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Carl McCollman. He's the author of a dozen books, including Answering the Contemplative Call, First Steps on the Mystical Path, and The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, The Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality. He's a regular contributor to Pathios and has blogged for the Huffington Post. You can find out more about him at his website, com. What strikes me in your answer, and I appreciate your ability to encapsulate a whole life into just a few minutes. Thank you for that. The, okay. <laughs> what, what strikes me about that is when you, when you talk about the contemplative tradition, one of the things that I think about uh, that immediately springs to mind would be the Desert Fathers and even the story of Jesus himself who goes into the, into the desert and the wilderness to fast and to pray and to have visions. And if we, if we extend that into the, the history of early Christianity, we have, we have numerous examples of, for want of a better word, contemplatives, holy men, mystics, who retreat from the city, who retreat from, from social space, and instead spend a life in asceticism, self-denial, deep contemplation, and eventually vision casting. And I, I wonder, as you look back over your journey and your life, can you identify any spots that you would consider to be similar sorts of desert experiences? You, you know, it's, what's, what's fascinating about this, David, is that uh, the book that I'm just begun writing is a book on the spirituality of the desert. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it first, right here on Things Not Seen. Um, but the, um, so yes, the, the spirituality of the desert is very, very important to me. But to answer your question, you know, I guess we could say that, um, kind of like my sojourn in, in exploring neo-paganism, could be described as a desert experience, but, but I think a better word would be, be a wilderness experience. It's interesting, if you look at at the Christians of, of, of Ireland, I mean, I, I've mentioned that I had this very much strong interest in, in kind of pagan Irish mythology and Celtic mythology, but also that extends into, you know, the, the fascinating expression of Christianity that you find among the Celts, especially in kind of the 4th through the 6th centuries. And they referred to wilderness places in Ireland as the desert. So, you, you know, you certainly didn't have a desert like you would have in Egypt or Syria. 
I mean, there are some regions in Ireland, especially in the western part of Ireland, there's the Burren, which is uh, basically this expanse of, of rock, very little vegetation. See, that's kind of a desert area. But, but what you really find is with the, the, the Celtic saints of, of, of early medieval Ireland, is that they would go off and live in, on islands out in the ocean, or they would live just in remote places in the wilderness. And that was their understanding of the desert. So I think we really need to explore this, you know, this relationship, you know, uh, desert and wilderness. But I think you, you hit on the right word, and that's the word withdrawal. And it's very interesting because you see that with, um, in the gospel story, that Jesus withdrew to pray. You know, Jesus withdrew into the desert where he was tempted by the, by the evil spirit. And, and it's very interesting because the word for, um, for withdrawal in Greek, and my Greek is not very good, I'm sure yours is a lot better, but is the same word that we get the word anchor or anchoress from, which in the Middle Ages referred to, um, there was one mystic in particular, her name was Julian of Norwich, and she was known as the anchoress of Norwich. And what that meant was that she lived a solitary life. She had withdrawn from the world, even though she was still living in the village. She was actually living in a cell attached to her church, where she basically prayed for the community and, and provided spiritual direction and spiritual counsel to people who came to see her. So it's an interesting paradox. You know, what does it mean to live this life of withdrawal, this life of retreat? And you can look at the monks. I mean, they live a cloistered life, so they've kind of withdrawn from the world. And, and, and certainly the monks here in Georgia, they have, even though they're in the Atlanta suburbs, which kind of grew up around them when they, when they first came out here in the 1940s, they were just on a plantation in rural Georgia. But Atlanta kind of, you know, found them. But they, they have 2,000 acres, so they have like this beautiful green space right in the middle of the Atlanta suburbs. And, and it's in there that they are stewarding this land, trying to preserve this land as a green space, but then also trying to be faithful to, to their life of prayer in, in the midst of the hurly-burly of, of the suburban world. And so I think that that's something that um, I'm, I'm kind of way beyond your question. I hope this is okay. But that uh, this question of withdrawal, to me, it's like, well, withdrawal for what? It's not a, what are you withdrawing from, but what are you withdrawing to? And, um, you know, going back to, okay, my period in the wilderness, my period exploring paganism, you know, out there drumming with all the witches and the druids and so forth. You know, I look at it now and I say, hey, that was just part of the journey. That was part of the search. It was, it was part of my trying to, you know, really truly understand who I am, understand what it means to be an embodied person, understand what it means to live in relationship with the earth, all of that kind of stuff. You know, so I, I was withdrawing from consumer culture. And, um, and even though eventually I felt a very clear sense that the Holy Spirit was calling me back into communion with, with Christianity, you know, I learned certainly some kind of some identity or life, life values within that sojourn that then enriched my journey towards being as faithful as I can be today. You mentioned that your starting point for your practice of lay contemplation is the radical and unconditional love that you find in the Christian tradition. And that that struck me, and I, I think that that's, that that's very good, but it also raised a question for me. How easy is that? And if if radical and unconditional love is your starting point, do you find that possible every day? And what are the barriers to that? And when you find that it's not easy to radically and unconditionally love those around you, how do you deal with that? 
Well, I should say I I feel that we are, and I can speak personally, of course, but I'll speak globally as well, that we are all held in the radical and unconditional love of God. Our kind of mandate as Christians is to respond to that love. You know, Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's kind of this trinity of love, loving God, loving others, loving the self in healthy and appropriate ways. But it's all in response to the love that has been given to us. Yeah, you know, hey, guess what? I have good days and bad days, like everyone else, you know. And, you know, if you got my wife and my daughter on, on the line, I'm sure they could they could really contribute to my humility by telling you about all the ways in which I have failed to live up to the love of which I have been given. But isn't that true of all of us? I mean, obviously, to a greater or lesser extent. You know, we all go through rhythms. And, um, and I think part of, the, part of the earthiness of the spiritual life, and I, I don't care if you're a Christian, a Buddhist, or whatever, is, is coming to grips with the fact that we do not live up to our own ideals of who we aspire to be, who we seek to be, who we feel we are called to be. We make mistakes. The word sin basically means mistake. And we've kind of turned it into this kind of, you know, moral turpitude and kind of this, you know, you know, this sense of dirtiness or filthiness. And that's not to say that, that there isn't sin and behavior that is morally questionable. But but sin is just when we're we're uncaring and, and unpleasant and, and nasty to people just because we've had a bad day. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's funny because I think my, my Lutheran background is showing up here, you know, where um, there's, it's like there's no way you can escape being in sin. I, I don't mean to, you know, kind of lay a psychological trip on us, and I think that's the problem with that kind of theology of sin is that, you know, people can get compulsive about it. But what I mean to say is that I think that we all basically part you know part of the spiritual life is authenticity and honesty and learning to be honest about who we are and i think who we are is we're people that make mistakes this is things not seen i'm david dalt we're listening back to a 2013 interview with carl mccollman author of the forthcoming book befriending silence discovering the gifts of cistercian spirituality you can find out more about mccollman and his work at our website things not seen radio We'll be back in a moment. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash things not seen radio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. 
This week, we're listening back to a 2013 interview with Carl McCollman, author of over a dozen books on Christian spirituality. His most recent is Befriending Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality, forthcoming in November 2015. Before the break, we were talking with Carl McCollman about human nature, and he summed it up in one simple phrase, we make mistakes. We're people that fall down. We screw up. And so, you know, part of the journey into the unconditional love of God is the journey of recognizing that God loves us even in our brokenness, even in our woundedness, even in our propensity to not love others the way we have been loved, to not love ourselves. I mean, for so many of us, the deepest, darkest places is the places in which we we are contemptuous of ourselves, or we make unloving choices about ourselves. You know, what is addiction? I mean, addiction is a breakdown of of appropriate, healthy self-love. And so it's, I think it's just a profound journey that we're all on to aspire to be loving people, to acknowledge that we, we fail in our aspirations, and then not to despair, not to just withdraw into cynicism. And I think this is, this is one of the things that, that I weep about the culture that we live in today, is I think it's a profoundly cynical culture, and a culture where so many people seem to have just kind of turned their back on even the aspirations. To, to try to be, you know, kind, loving, considerate, civil people. And we've kind of just settled for every, every man, every person for themselves kind of a mentality. And I, I think that's tragic. I think that's, that's very sad. Um, and certainly not consistent with, with my sense of what Jesus was trying to teach us, or the Buddha for that matter. So, um, you know, so it's just this paradox of, you know, yeah, I, I receive love from God unconditionally. And on my good days, I manage to pass some of that love on to others. And, and, and then there are times when I don't do a very good job of that. And, um, you know, and I'm just called to humbly acknowledge that and, and, and to, to return to the love of God. I mean, the word repentance, all the word repentance means is to turn back and also to adopt a new consciousness, a new awareness. And this awareness that God is just God is love, and God calls us to love. And we just have to continually turn back to that. As we look at the culture that we're sharing, the culture has itself been largely shaped by the history of Christianity, uh, at least here in the West, here in America. But also right now we can look at our culture and see that there is a particular type of Christianity, uh, what we might call sort of evangelical republicanism that has staked out uh, a, a mighty territory, a mighty fortress, to use Lutheran language, within our culture. And I, I wonder, what do you consider the response of a contemplative, the proper response of a contemplative to be in a culture in which we live today, in the culture like we live in today, where, where we've got both the rampant consumerism, consumerism, the narcissism, but we also have at least this this type of Christianity that has staked out, if you will, a sort of exclusivist position within that culture of narcissism and consumerism. And, and I would say that it's not just among evangelicals. I, I certainly see that, uh, that trend in Catholics as well. And, and it's interesting, you know, mainline Protestants, of course, which, as I'm sure you well know, you know, the numbers have, have diminished so much in recent years. But even among mainline Protestants, sometimes you can kind of see a, a trend of, you know, well, you know, we're more liberal than you are, we're more tolerant than you are, you know, kind of always playing this game, you know, I'm one up on you. 
It's interesting. I'm reading a book right now by Richard Rohr, who is, is kind of one of my heroes. It's called Immortal Diamond, The Search for Our True Self. And, and you know, and one of the things that, that Rohr, and Rohr is a Franciscan priest, so, so he's a Catholic. But, you know, he really kind of calls the church to task on how the church oftentimes is so much more interested. And, I, and again, I'm using the church in the broad sense, not just the Catholic church, but the Christian church so much more invested in kind of bolstering our ego, what what Thomas Merton called the false self, the ego, the ego, the kind of like, I'm, well, I'm saved and you're not, or I'm, I'm, God loves me, but he doesn't love you, or he loves me more than he loves you, you know, any of those kinds of kind of compare and contrast games, and it's built on kind of this reward and punishment model. I've done all the right things. I've been born again. I participate in the sacraments. You know, whatever, however your particular flavor of Christianity expresses it. I do all the right things, so therefore I'm, I'm saved, I'm justified, I'm one of the elect, and all the rest of you guys aren't, unless you change and do what I do. I mean, this is all kind of functioning on kind of this, this egoic level, or this false self level. And, and what Rohr suggests, and I would agree with him, is that the problem with that kind of religion, that kind of externalized religion, is that it leaves the inner, the, the true self, untransformed or un, unexpressed. And, and the true self is that part of us where, um, and it's interesting, you see this among the mystics. I mean, uh, Meister Eckhart brought this up, Thomas Merton taught it, Julian of Norwich taught it, it just shows up again and again, George Fox of the Quakers, that there is this space within us that wholly belongs to God, that is, is where God resides in our soul. And, um, and, you know, really, I think the function of Christianity is to help people to loosen the grip of kind of that, that false self, that, 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 that shell that's all about, you know, kind of making our way in the world, and to find that place of profound vulnerability and profound um, openness to the presence of God within us, because that's where true humility. And again, humility is not the same thing as humiliation, and our culture tends to conflate the two. You know, humility is not about that I'm a worm and I'm a bad person. Humility is about I'm, a, I'm earthy. I'm down to earth. Um, I'm, just, I'm just who I am. I'm, I'm made out of, you know, out of flesh and, and bone and blood, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to die. That's humility. Humility is just authenticity. But humility, forgiveness, compassion, the ability to relate to people, you know, just as people, that all emerges from that place within us where the love of God always resides, even if we turn our back on it. And, and I think it's, it's, it's frustrating because I, I think that so much of, of, of kind of the Christian religion as it, as it expresses itself has kind of turned its back on that. You know, and we, there's, we, we could spend a whole other hour talking about why that is so. I mean, you know, it's, it's the nature of an institution, of any institution. It's the nature of an institution to preserve the institution. And so you certainly see that with the institutional religion. Uh, and, and you see that with institutional religion of other religions, too. I mean, I, I, I sit down with my Buddhist friends, and they complain about the foibles of their institutions. So <laughs> it's nothing unique to Christianity. But, um, you know, so, so you've got that kind of problem. I mean, you mentioned evangelicalism, and, you know, and I would sit here and say, well, you know, look at Catholicism and look at the model of the Roman Empire, which became the model of the Catholic hierarchy, and the problems that that has caused and continues to cause. 
So I think that, that every expression of Christianity has this very complex kind of interplay with trying to be faithful to, to, to the radical message of God's grace, while at the same time also trying to function in a world that is so often not ready or able to hear that message. And so what, what does the institution do? It, it just it, it muddles through as best as it can, and, and it makes mistakes. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. We all make mistakes, and we make mistakes on institutional and social levels just as we do on individual levels. You know, I mean, the church often gets so focused on individual sin. Uh, I mean, you know, sexual sin or, or matters of personal morality and those kinds of things. And, and I think that it's, it's wise to be mindful of, the, you know, our, is our behavior loving? But we, we also need to consider social sin and the way in which, in which the church colludes with economic injustice or the church colludes with, with social structures that, that are racist or are sexist or are homophobic or, or are harmful to the environment. And, and people get overwhelmed when you bring those kinds of issues up, and yet that's part of the package. We, we, we sin in social ways just as we do in individual ways. And I think part of being a Christian is to be humble and to, and to, to turn away from sin back to love, back to grace, back to compassion and forgiveness um, on all of those levels. So it's a mighty, mighty task. And then you say, okay, our help is in the name of the Lord. It's only by the grace of God that we, we are able to even address these issues. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2013 interview with author and Christian contemplative Carl McCollman. His most recent book, coming in November 2015, is Befriending the Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality. We'll return to our conversation with Carl McCollman after a short break. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us. You can find us with the handle at NotSeenRadio. And if you'd like to keep up with me, your host, and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio, D-A-U-L-T Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us at Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, if you would, take just a minute and give us a review and write a little bit of commentary about what you think of the show. Uh, that's actually unbelievably helpful to us for rankings, but also for letting other people know about the show. And we always appreciate you listening, so thanks for taking the time to do that. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. By the way, the music that we're listening to right now is Don't Be Afraid. 
from the electronic music artist Molly Bancroft. You can find out more about her and her music at ReverbNation.com slash Molly Bancroft. She's also on Twitter at Molly B Music. Even though we're broadcasting reruns because it's summer, we're hard at work behind the scenes taping new interviews for the fall. Some national-level figures will be joining us. Uh, We've got uh, Jim Wallace from Sojourners Magazine and Ibu Patel of the Interfaith Youth Corps, among many others who will be our guests. We're looking forward to sharing those new interviews with you in a few weeks, but in the meantime, uh, we hope that you're enjoying uh, our little trip into the past. Thank you, as always, for listening. We now return to the final part of our interview with Carl McCullman, author of over a dozen books on contemplative Christianity, including Spirituality, a Postmodern and Interfaith Approach to Cultivating a Relationship with God, The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, The Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality, Answering the Contemplative Call, First Steps on the Mystical Path, and the forthcoming Befriending Silence, Discovering the Gifts of Cistercian Spirituality, which will be available November of 2015. You can find out more about McCullman and his work at his website, carlmccullman.com, and at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. As we've been talking... It's clear that you you have a very rich life. You also have this ongoing relationship with the Trappist Monastery there in the Atlanta suburbs. And I'm wondering, in this mixed life, if I can use that phrase and borrow it from Walter Hilton, how do you find balance? What is the way in which you keep one thing from demanding too much of your spirit and your time? Well, and, and that's interesting because, you know, the monks are very clear about that. When, when people apply to become lay Cistercians, one of the questions that they ask is, how will you integrate this with your family life? And, you know, is your spouse supportive of you, you know, taking on this, this new, new dimension of your journey? So they're very clear that, that there is the potential for people to use spiritual practice kind of as a way of, kind of as an avoidance mechanism, that kind of thing. So, you know, so something I think we all have to be mindful of. What um, my understanding of living a contemplative life is very much anchored on the idea that it's something you do one day at a time and that you need that kind of balance on a daily basis as well as kind of on an overall basis. So what I strive to do, and I say strive because obviously some days are better than others, is I strive to integrate every day um, time for prayer, time for meditation, Lectio Divina, a personal study, uh, obviously my work, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm blessed in that I'm self-employed, so I work at home, so, so that's, that's a blessing. Um, but then also time just to be attentive to my family and to be present to my wife, present to my daughter, you know, helping in the kitchen or cleaning up or whatever it is I need to do you know, to, um, to be present with my family. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think you can quantify it and say, well, I need to spend an hour a day praying and I need to spend 90 minutes a day hanging out with the family. I mean, it's on an intuitive level, but it's also trying to establish basically, a, I, I don't like the word routine because that sounds like drudgery, 
what the monks call their life is a life, uh, they call it the orarium, which is a Latin word that basically means the hours of the day. And the idea that you get up in the morning, and for the monks it's at 4 o'clock. You, know, you get up in the morning and the first thing they do is pray. And then they gather for Mass at 7. And then they work from from 10 to 12 and on throughout the day. And so their days are very, very, very structured. My my days are not nearly as structured as the monks are, but I do seek that kind of basic rhythm so that I can be attentive to my commitment to prayer, but also attentive to my work and to family and to to taking care of the responsibilities around the house. And, um, you know, and then also find time to just kick back and watch, you know, Duck Dynasty or something like that. Well, Carl McCollman, I have very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's been, it's been a great pleasure, David. Thank you. Our guest today was Carl McCollman. He's an author, spiritual director, and lay contemplative. He's the author of a dozen books, including Answering the Contemplative Call, First Steps on the Mystical Path, and The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, The Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality. He's a regular contributor to Pathios and has blogged frequently for the Huffington Post. You can find out more about him on his website, carlmccolman.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop and in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keecha. We also listened to Don't Be Afraid by Molly Bancroft. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton. We'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.